Thank you for joining us for this Turf Dudes Extra. This is Jack Harrell III, Senior VP of Sales, Marketing, and R&D at Harrell's. Today, we are bringing you a recording of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Harrell's Director of Agronomy, giving a presentation to the volunteers at the Players' Championship at TPC Sawgrass. In this episode, Dr. Snyder provides a background and basic understanding of foliar fertilizers and how they're manufactured, as well as biostimulants and how they can be useful in overall turf management programs. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everybody to the volunteer tent here at the Players 2015. My name's Raymond Snyder, and I'm the research and development manager at Harold. I'd like to thank TPC Sawgrass for having me and Turf Republic for having me here today to discuss a little bit about foliar fertilizer fundamentals. Uh, on today's agenda, I'd like to cover three things. Number one, a little bit of background, some basic understanding of foliar fertilizer, uh, ma manufacturing foliar products, and then go a little bit into the biostimulant sources and benefits and how those can be useful in overall turf management programs. First of all, let me talk about a little bit about, you know, what is the objective of foliar fertilization? Number one is the ability to uniformly apply small quantities of plant nutrients and biostimulants. Uh, to also helps to provide rapid turf color responses. It's a great way to correct plant nutrient deficiencies rapidly, including both macro and micronutrients. And then finally, when soil conditions are not favorable for root absorption, for example, the presence of nematodes or uh, root zones that have compaction layers, uh, the foliar nutrient application is often only the only choice for turf managers. Some background, general characteristics of foliar, foliar fertilization. Uh, and this is information that I've gathered over the last seven, eight years uh, from various academic sources. So this information is, is all supported by the uh, academic world and, and is cited below in case you want to do some further reading. But number one, some things that we've learned over the years is that younger leaves have better foliar absorption than older leaves. Well, that works out great for us because in general, we're always dealing with new leaf tissues in our turf management systems. Uh, plants have both cuticular and stomatal absorption of liquid materials through above ground tissue, mainly the leaves. And we've also determined that these transcuticular pores play an extremely important role in facilitating nutrient absorption. Uh, some of the work supports that the lower underneath uh, leaf surfaces uh, with more stomata helps absorb more nutrients than the upper leaf side. I'm not sure how much that plays a role in turf management, but that's supported in the uh, academic uh, research. Uh, here's an important point. Neutral ion absorption seems to be more efficient than cation or positively charged ions with respect to foliar absorption. Uh, these transcuticular pores, uh, stomata often uh, are charged and so neutral ions, things like urea or chelated micronutrients are much more easily absorbed than their uh, positive or negative counterparts. Um, question I get is, which elements are foliar absorbed? And if you look through the literature, basically all essential plant nutrients have the ability to have foliar absorption. So that's a little bit of background on uh, some of those factors. But uh, when you talk about efficiency, how much the nutrients are actually absorbed through the foliage. Most studies have characterized nitrogen. Uh, with those general ranges, 
being in the 70 to 100% range of efficiency. Um, there's a lot of variability uh, with respect to some of the other nutrients, and some of that's based on um, perhaps the, uh, the means of evaluation. But for the most part, there's a very high efficiency in terms of foliar absorption for most of the elements. Well, if it's not foliar absorbed, well, where does the rest go? Number one, you have volatilization, you get retention in the thatch, it moves past the leaf surface, clipping removal, uh, that's always can be a factor. Probably don't want to mow immediately following foliar application. And then uh, soil solution and root uptake. I'd like to go back and just mention a little bit about volatilization. Uh, we often create these foliar products with slow release components in it or stabilized nutrients. To me, one of the best factors associated with a slow release liquid or stabilized liquid is the ability to reduce volatilization. Okay? Maximize efficiency and foliar uptake of the plant. That to me is the greatest role of the slow release triazone type or UMAX components in foliar fertilizers. Uh, I often get asked the question, how can we improve foliar absorption, foliar efficiency? Um, there's a lot of work out there that they basically identified if you're in that 20 to 50 gallon per acre range, you're maximizing foliar absorption. Uh, here's another question that I, that I often get. Following application, when can we apply irrigation? Or when can we mow or conduct other management practices? Generally speaking, the literature supports that foliar absorption plateaus at about four to six hours following application. That's when you get the maximum absorption of foliar applied nutrients. And then there's also supporting evidence for the inclusion of adjuvants or surfactants. Um, you know, I would use those as tools. However, I would also urge a little bit of caution that if there are a lot of components in a tank mix, minimize or use low rates of adjuvants or surfactants as some tip burning may occur. Um, in my role, I often get the question, and I ask myself the, the question, what makes a good foliar product? And I've really narrowed it down to four specific topics. Number one, raw material selection. Number two, utilizing chelating agents. Number three, formulation technique. And number four, you want to verify the usefulness of these solutions through field research and development. Uh, raw material selection is really important. Now, here's an example on the left versus the right. On the left, you see a high-quality, low-impurity foliar nutrient source. On the right, the orange material, that's a source that's perfectly suitable for dry granular blending, and they both actually happen to be the exact same nutrients. However, the one on the left, the white material, high purity, high solubility relative to the orange material on the right that may have a little bit of um, inherent contaminant associated with it. Still a good material, however, not ideal for foliar, creating foliar materials and the right on product on the right, perfect for dry granular blending. Often you'll see uh, words or terms associated with 
foliar raw material sources. They usually indicate technical or food grade. Again, what we're looking for is high solubility and low impurity contents. Now here's a good example of a foliar, high quality raw material on the left forming the pink solution relative to a commonly used raw material, tech mangum, it's mang manganese sulfate on the right. Uh, nothing wrong with tech mangum. We sell it, use it all the time. It's commonly used. However, you'll see that even though we have the same amount of nutrient in each beaker, same amount of water, a little bit of stirring, the higher quality, high impurity, correction, high purity product on the left, the, forming the pink solution, you don't get any sediment, and therefore you, you'll see that the product integrity is much greater, and you'll also observe, more often than not, an excellent turf response. All right, we'll talk a little bit about chelating. I pointed that out earlier. Why do we use a chelate? Well, a few reasons why I like to use a chelate. Number one, uh, you're protecting the components within the jug from each other, from precipitation within that jug. Often we're attempting to combine elements that aren't always work, going to work well together in the absence of a chelate. Okay, so that's part of the reason we can have a nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and iron component or other micronutrients and still have a nice uh, foliar solution, liquid solution. So in addition to that, the chelates also protect those nutrients from added antagonists. Okay, for example, uh, as depicted here, adding an 1836 type of material to a calcium, protect the calcium, protect the iron in the combined solution from precipitating and maximize efficiency of those products. Um, in addition, many of the visits that I make to the various uh, facilities, we often do not have the best water quality. That just seems to be the trend, the way things are going these days in our industry. So the chelates help to protect against the antagonists in the water that we're using in our, in our, uh, in our tank mix solutions. High pH, high bicarbonate. Uh, you know, anytime I see a pH above 7.5, getting close to 8, even between 8 and 9, you know, that should raise the, the signal that, number one, we may need to buffer that solution down closer to 7. And in addition, there's a much greater potential for micronutrient fallout in those high pH, high bicarbonate solution water. Okay, so chelating helps us protect the integrity of these products. And then finally, uh, chelation also helps to promote the uptake of these micronutrients, most importantly, in the soil if they do move past the leaf tissue. All right, so what I encourage everyone to do is look at your labels. A good label will communicate the type of chelate used, the presence or absence of a chelate, and in general, I try to look for products that have uh, glucoheptanate or citrate type of chelating systems. Those chelates are also great for foliar absorption, uh, maximize the efficiency of those micronutrients. Now here's an example of where my products that contain micronutrients, especially iron and manganese, were sprayed on these concrete pavers. Um, the absence of staining helps to communicate the effectiveness of the chelating sources. So in these t um, tiles where you don't observe any staining, that's where you see the chelated components included in these products, 
minimize staining and maximize the efficiency of these nutrients. All right, so in addition, we mentioned uh, protecting against added antagonists. And here's what you're looking for when it all comes together. Um, you know, here's an example where you have two highly concentrated products, a 12-212, that's a really full solution, and a phosphite, uh, 0030 potassium phosphite, applied at their highest rates. And what this is providing you an example of the combination of these nutrients in what the equivalent is of 50 gallons per acre. Nice, clean, clear, translucent solutions in, that do not have any precipitates. This is the product of proper raw materials, chelation, formulation testing. This is, this is what you'd like to see um, occur in your tanks. Uh, and here's another example of utilizing the proper raw materials. Uh, this is a compatibility chart that's created that most uh, manufacturers should have. And what you see here is a lot of green, meaning there's a lot of potential combinations that these products can be utilized with. All right, so we talked about raw materials, chelating, uh, you know, manufacturing is important. This is what you'd like to see if you were to go visit a liquid plant. Uh, stainless steel equipment, professional grade type materials. This is versus uh, plastic, uh, you know, uh, lack of professionalism in a facility. So this is this is the type of feel that you look and feel that you'd like to see out of a manufacturing facility. Uh, finally, you also want to look at quality control. Each product has a specific manufacturing protocol: raw materials, temperatures, mixing times safety precautions. All this lends itself to ideal foliar manufacturing. Uh, here's something to point out, and this is not specific to foliar products. This is, this is related to most of the materials and products that are utilized on a golf course or in the landscape environment. If you ever have a concern related to the look and feel, the odor of a product that you're beginning to utilize, and you have a question as to whether or not it meets specification, often you'll find a quality um, batch number at somewhere on that container, whether it's the bottom of the container, on a box, and what that batch number allows a manufacturer to do is to go back to the lab, identify that specific batch, and determine whether or not there is a quality concern. So everything can go back to the laboratory and uh, where those retains exist for that specific batch number and allow us to determine whether or not that product has met specifications. All right, now I'd like to talk a little bit about biostimulants. This you know, uh, is a term that you know, often we are using these days to help facilitate turf plant health. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the you know, what is exactly what is a biostimulant? Here's a couple of good definitions that, that I've identified over the years. And um, the one I like is it's, it's an organic material that when applied in small quantities enhances plant growth and development such that the response cannot be attributed to the application of traditional plant nutrients. It's doing something more than traditional NPK and micronutrients. Um, Dr. Beard had a really good term, and I think you're beginning to hear this a little bit more in the industry, they're called metabolic enhancers. Uh, what are these biostimulants doing? 
They're improving turf grass, photochemical activity, and overall quality. When does this occur? When are, when are we getting the most usefulness out of biostimulants? When the turf is subjected to stress, low mowing height, dollar spot, non-target pesticide applications, nematode infestations, salinity, bicarbonates, pH, high UV light intensity and heat. These are all opportunities to improve overall plant health, turf quality by the inclusion of a biostimulant. Here's a little uh, map that I thought was interesting. You know, we talk about our turf grasses, whether or not they're under stress. Well, I went back through some literature and identified the origin of the turf grass species most predominantly used, for example, bent grass and Bermuda grass. Look at the latitudes at which these plants originated relative to where we are in the United States or even wherever you are in the world. Okay, we're often growing these plants far out of the range of which they were originated. Okay, so in general, I'd say that for most of the year, especially under the conditions that we're putting these plants, they're under some sort of stress. Um, another question I often get is, okay, so we understand the role of biostimulants. Uh, we understand that they can improve turf quality, turf health. Uh, we understand when to use them. But what are the most common biostimulants that give me the best bang for my buck? And really this, the, the literature, the, the academic world has identified two common biostimulants, uh, seaweed extract and humic acid. Um, and um, within that seaweed extract family, the ascophyllum nodosum component within the seaweed family has been identified as the most effective uh, seaweed extract source, especially when it's prepared by alkaline hydrolysis. And this seaweed um, originated in these cold Norwegian waters where the seaweed is subjected to tidal influences, exposed to, to UV light, and sitting on rocks uh, for great periods of time and over through time through evolution they've, they've accumulated cytokinins and auxins to help themselves cope with the stresses associated with these tidal fluctuations and rapid temperature changes. So when I look at a product I'm always looking for the inclusion of seaweed extract but beyond that I also like to identify the source and I believe that the ascophyllum nodosum source is really key to maximizing the efficacy of a seaweed extract component. Uh, the second source of biostimulants, which are really important, are the humic acid. This is within the humic acid family. These are extracted from soils, peats, coals, lignite. Um, now, within the humic acid family, I would look for products that are derived from fulvic acid. They've been identified as the most biologically active fraction. And in addition to that, they're extremely soluble over a broad pH range. They make for great components with tank mixes, with, with various liquid products. So I look for ascophyllum nodosum, and I look for fulvic acid. They make great raw, mater they make great raw materials for formulation. Uh, here's an example of some work. This is from Zhang and, and Schmidt. Uh, taken out of a golf course management magazine in 2003. Uh, here we're looking at turf moisture and root mass. And here's where we see where the combination of the two, the ascophyllum nodosum, the seaweed extract, and the humic acid, have somewhat of a 1 plus 1 equals 3 effect. Okay? 
um, see the control relative to seaweed extract, a little bit of improvement in, in, in moisture, a little bit of improvement in root mass. Sometimes you see it with the humic acid. However, you see the greatest impact when you have seaweed extract in combination with the humic acid, that one plus one equals three. Okay, this is laboratory work. Then you can take it in the field. Here's some work that we conducted several years ago at Auburn University. Uh, the, the, the 400 is a combination of seaweed extract, uh, ascophomonidosum, and fulvic acid. And you look at the overall plant density relative to the control. There's a st statistical significance there, much greater plant density, and uh, 27 days after application on G2 creeping bent grass. Okay, so that's somewhat of the benefit and power associated with these biostimulants. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you really want to utilize these materials when the turf is under stress, okay? Uh, here's an example of some work conducted at Rutgers in 2013, uh, where we looked at secure insignia, uh, secure insignia with two products that contain seaweed extract and fulvic acid versus the untreated control. Early in the season, in June, we didn't see a lot of differentiation whether or not we had the biostimulant components. Late in the season, we did not observe a big difference when those biostimulants components were included. However, when we were looking back over the data in July, there was a statistical difference in turf quality associated when those biostimulant components were included. And so we went back and we looked at some historical uh, meteorological data, and what did we observe in that July period in 2013 in New Jersey? I believe it was the fourth warmest or fifth warmest July on record. Okay, so when things got hot, when the conditions were most stressful, the inclusion of those biostimulant sources really helped keep the turf at an optimal turf quality level relative to those periods when there wasn't as much stress. Now the tricky part is do we don't always know when we're going to have those extreme conditions. So in general, you may want to consider including these biostimulants um, throughout most of the period when you may experience stress. Um, here's another example. This is, this is laboratory work where we looked at poa And here's an example where we're adding or stacking different technologies, different biostimulant, plant health type of technologies. And what we observed here was the seaweed extract and the fulvic acid along with the potassium phosphite and even the inclusion of a pigment really helped to maintain turf quality at its maximum potential during the course of imparted heat stress. All right, so at that period of about 35 to 42 days, we were able to maintain higher quality turf relative to the untreated control. Now you get to the point where the heat stress just overwhelms the plant and all of the treatments crash, but hopefully by then, someone will have uh, realized that the irrigation was off. All right, so here's a little bit of a summary based on some of the facts, the interesting points that we talked about. Um, you know, when I'm building programs, and I think most of you guys are doing this type of stuff, um, you know, you wanna have, you wanna start with foundation products, the NPK and micros. That needs to be the foundation of a good, of a good program. You know, select products that have the look and feel of quality, select products using those proper chelating agents, the glucoheptanate, the 
citrate, those are the products that are going to give you the, the best responses. Um, when you're looking at biostimulants and supplementing your, your foundation products, look for those products that contain the fulvic acid or the ascophilmendosum. Apply them weekly or biweekly, but the point is to apply them regularly during those periods which you think you're going to ob 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 observe stress. Uh, alternate phosphites, include phosphites, you know, help the plant defense mechanisms. Um, alternate them with your regular foliar K applications. And then with, you know, I often get, where do, what do I need to target? NPK micronutrients. A tenth of a pound to 0.15 of N, a half of uh, 0 0.05 pounds of K to 0.15 pounds of K per thousand square feet per week. And then this is something I would also consider. Where are your micronutrient levels at? Uh, what are your inputs? We're often, we often talk about N and K very easily. However, we've identified through over the course of uh, the last number of years that if your weekly or biweekly iron and manganese inputs are at 0.015 pounds of either element per thousand square feet per week, that's where you're going to maximize the effectiveness and really keep your turf quality at the highest level. Uh, so with that, I'd like to say, you know, thank you to uh, the group here at TPC Sawgrass. Thank you for Turf Republic. Thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Turf Dudes Extra. You can subscribe to us at iTunes and Google Play or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.com. Send your questions to at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email at turfdudes at heralds.com.